that was the opening music from Metropolis, uh, released in 1927 originally, and uh, it has gone through quite a there's quite a history to the movie. I watched the 1984 version that Giorgio Moroder released, which apparently is seen as sacrilegious by many and a camp cult reworking by others, according to the Metropolis1927.com website. Uh, but apparently there was a... I think I, I remember reading about this in 2008. There was a 16 millimeter negative found that had 25 minutes of additional footage and that was reworked in 2010 to an extended restored version which I guess is a lot more like the original because as often happened oh go ahead I think they were able to they found it in Argentina and I think they were able to uh, restore 95 percent of the original uh, movie and it was it, it had its screening in Berlin and Frankfurt in uh, February of 2010 that's cool. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. This is Matt Johnson, uh, and I'm coming to you from Seattle. And uh, you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews. And you can find us at www.classicmoviereviews.net. And on iTunes and Facebook, just search for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Bob Johnson uh, here in Los Angeles, welcoming you back to uh, Classic Movie Reviews. Metropolis is a is a wonderful film. I was able to watch both the uh, the restored version and the 1984 version, so I got the contrast and comparison between the two. Uh, a little bit of background, if if I could, before we start in with the uh, with the story. Fritz Lang was the director, and I was looking up his background. The uh, this isn't the American Film Institute, but the British Film Institute, which may soon become as popular to us as. The American one lists Fritz Lang as the master of darkness when it comes to movies. Oh, I love that title. That's cool. I do. He was he was involved in films from 1917 through 1963. Wow, that's a long career. And if you can if everybody gets a chance to watch one of his movies from 1953 called The Big Heat with Glenn Ford and Lee Marvin and uh, Gloria Graham, it's a terrific movie and it just confirms that he is the master of darkness when making a movie that's that's cool one of the things that i thought was interesting about the movie was that when giorgio Moroder redid it he put this other music onto it that was kind of uh it's kind of like b-roll mu music from the 80s it was none of the songs <laughs> were songs that i recognized but i could definitely tell they were from the 80s indeed Indeed. Yeah, I, I, uh, I liked it. I, I I could see why people might think it was kind of sacrilegious and a, and a bit camp, but there were still some really powerful scenes, and, and I thought the music in certain parts... There was a scene when we first see the workers coming up from the city below, and they're in those elevators. Yes. And the music, I thought, was just perfect in that version.
to give you that feeling of oppression and despair. And it was kind of sent chills up my spine, actually. I thought it was really, really good. You know, I think that back in the 80s, in the mid-80s, when MTV was on uh, uh, cable, when we first had MTV, I swear that there were scenes from that Metropolis movie that they played with that music. I just it sticks in my memory that, and that that scene that you just described is the one that comes to mind. You 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 might be right actually. That does that does ring a bell. It does it does kind of watch like an extended music video um, that version and it does. I I've seen I haven't seen the latest extended cut from 2010 but i've seen one from like early 2000s maybe there was a 2001 version that i've seen that is a little bit different but what did you think about the the two versions which which one did you like uh more or were they just different uh they were different but i guess of the two i i like the 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 original 1927 a little better I, i sent you a list of some of the things i thought i really got out of the film because there are so many themes going on and it's hard to capture them all. But here's a list of part of them. There's a struggle between the father and son. The father is a cold and controlling dictatorial type. And then there's the struggle of the proletariat workers deep beneath the sea. It reminded me of uh, Karl Marx and his Communist Manifesto that he wrote in the early 1900s about the oppressed workers. Then there's Maria, who's almost angelic and turns out to also be a robot. Then there's the mad scientist who makes all this stuff happen. And then there's the upper rich, again, uh, that was referred to at the time as bourgeoisie. And uh, it seemed to me that the father figure in this was almost passing as a, as a pseudo-Hitler. I mean, I, I, got, <laughs> I took a lot out of this movie. It, it, and not to mention the architecture, the scenes, the the subplots. I I just found it to be. Well, it had a lot going for it, and it was quite long. It was two and a half hours practically. Yeah. Well, and, and you said that Maria was also a robot, but actually, what I think happened was that the scientist uh, transferred her sort of humanness to the robot, and, and so there was the robot running around and causing all kinds of trouble because the robot was sort of made to work for the father figure. And then Maria was uh, put in the kind of in a dungeon, right? So she had to be rescued. Did you, did you think that when uh, the mad scientist, I forget his name right now, was uh, making the robot uh, over into Maria's image, that those scenes in the laboratory were used a few years later in Frankenstein? Not only did I think they were the s- similar, but they were better than the ones in Frankenstein, I thought. I do, too. I thought they were more uh, fantastical and just fun to watch. Those rings that were around the robot as it began to become like Maria, all that, oh, man. I think that's probably stands up as well today as, as it ever did. I, I just thought that was an amazing scene of transformation and... I saw some of the behind-the-scenes photos of the actress uh, Bridget Helm, yes, uh, getting the getting the robot costume on. That was really cool costume, and it was uh, 
super tight fitting. I don't think she could move around very well once she had it on. But as I was looking around the internet on different articles about the film, I came across a photograph of the uh, robot Maria. It's a statue at the uh, Babelsberg, Germany uh, studio. A life-size statue of the uh, robot. God, I'd love to have something like that. I don't know where I'd put it in my house, but that would be amazing. You could have it right by the front door. <laughs> the inventor's name, yeah. <laughs> scare the little kids when they come over. For um, Halloween it would, that's for sure. The inventor's name was Rotwing. Oh yeah, how can I forget that name? That name was crazy, Rotwing. And I don't know about you, but he looked a little off in the uh, in the uh, brain category. <laughs> Jeez. He had that dark makeup around his eyes. He, I think he probably hadn't slept more than an hour in the last week. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the, the social uh, message of the movie is, is really clear. And I love the, the ending where it, it turns out that Fredder becomes sort of the, the bridge between the workers and the, the bourgeois. And there's that line, uh, he, he's the heart, like the mediator between the hands and the head. I love, I love that, yeah. I love that line. I, that, I just thought that was such a great line. Wasn't uh, the foreman of the heart machine, Grote, something else? He looked like he was singing opera. Yeah, and he was, he was like, "Don't do this, you know, because don't destroy the machine. You're going to flood the city." And they were, they were all worked up into that mob mentality, and they destroyed the machine anyway. And and uh, Grote was trying to stop them, but then of course he couldn't because there were hundreds of the workers. And the city starts flooding, and I thought that was another really powerful scene because all these little kids start coming out of these buildings, and and Maria and and Fredder have to get down there. And I think there's another man with them. I, I can't remember. The three of them try to rescue all the kids. I think the other guy's name is Josephat. Josephat. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So I was reading also that it took uh, Mr. Lang over a year to film all this. Oh, I believe it. Can you imagine doing that today on the budgets that, I mean, it would be out well, of they sight. Had, but they had to build all those sets, and those sets were incredible. And, and, and the miniature photography that they did, like with the little cars and the, the planes flying through the city, and uh, the, I just love the, the visual aspect of the movie. And when when Fredder had to, goes down into the, into the workings of the, the city and, and the heart machine, and he sees that one guy who his only job is to move those hands around and like try to make the hands line up with the lights and you can tell that he was just exhausted so fredder gets in there and says here take my clothes and i'll switch places with you and then he does that until the end of the shift and 
Yeah, that was a that was a powerful scene, both visually, but also just the idea that this guy's down there doing this completely ridiculous job. You know, that his only job is to line these arrows up with the lights. It <laughs> it, it made a statement also about a lot of rep- repetition and production work. The uh, the the person that was replaced that had been doing that job was uh, em- employee or person number eleven thousand eight hundred and eleven. Oh, okay, that was his title. His name and, and his name was Georgie, but everybody had a little cap that had their uh, number on it. That's right. And and sadly, that reminds me of things that were done later in Germany that we don't have to go into today. But where they were numbering, yeah, people that were that were uh, not wanted. I got more of a Russian um, communist vibe from the movie than like a Nazi vibe, but I I, I could see that particular part definitely has that feeling to it of the nazi germany yeah it it felt that way to me when with his father and uh with all the uniformed workers tromping around in unison like the marches they used to do at nuremberg right that's true that's true Uh, there's so much to cover in this i'm not sure how should we proceed well we could talk about maybe some of the influences that this movie had like you had mentioned frankenstein and man, there are so many parallels between this movie and Frankenstein. Just not just from the aspect of the the machines that they use to bring the monster to life, but the idea that science could get out of control and technology could get out of control, and and maybe it's there's things that people shouldn't mess with. You know, like I, I feel like all the people in the Metropolis were sort of slaves to to their machines. You know, even the people that were living up above in the the bourgeois you know they they didn't realize it but they were kind of slaves to the to the machines as well that's definitely a takeaway i uh i had another reference uh in blade runner the ridley scott movie from the early 80s uh-huh i had a i had a similar feeling in watching metropolis to some of the darkness and dankness and uh underworld underbelly feel of this movie and metropolis and then i mean and blade runner and in blade runner there of course were the uh replicants that could have been uh patterned after maria's robot so that was another one that i that i took away this is totally the opposite impression of what you just said but you know in the movie up where the old man has that little house that's between all those big buildings and it's yes he he refuses to sell his house well i kind of thought that Rotwing's house reminded me of that. Like he he had this old house that he must have just refused to like give up or sell or whatever. And it was in the, in in between all these other big buildings and it was kind of the only remaining you know old house. And I I just thought of the movie Up when I saw that. I I don't know if there's any influence there, but well also in real life there was a little house like that was that was stuck between Two high rises there in Magnolia, in the Magnolia district of Seattle. Remember? Oh, that's right. Yes. The woman refused to sell her little house, and they built around it. That's right. That's a real life example. That's of that. a real life. That, that that's where all this science work was being done. <laughs> Should we do the things we liked and didn't like, or sure? Plot? Let's, let's do that. I don't. I don't. The plot is. I'm a f- there's like I'm six f- different plots going on. I here. know we might end up being another forty minutes. Why don't since you watched both movies, why don't you talk about what you liked and didn't like about the Giorgio Moroder version, which is the only one I watched? <laughs> I'll say up front that I like the original version, as I mentioned earlier. And when I watched the, uh, the Moroder version, 
I had I watched it and I thought, yeah, this doesn't work for me as much because of the music and the way it's set up and 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 uh, put together. I just didn't find that to be as rewarding as the original, where it unfolds this complicated set of plots and subplots. I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, okay, well, that's that's good feedback. Now I, I, I feel like I've got to watch the uh, full extended cut. You can watch it on uh, on Netflix screen, uh, streaming. Okay, it's available on there. That's where I that's where I watched mine. And I, I've never been a fan of old classic movies that were done in black and white that had been colorized. There was a period of time in the eighties when I think Turner Broadcasting, long before classic movies became popular on Turner Classic Movies, but way before that. They were colorizing these these movies. I remember seeing Casablanca in color. It just didn't seem as good to me. I remember that. I remember that. It was like this all. It was like this trend of taking old movies and colorizing them. I remember they did uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" in color, and yes, it kind of it kind of ruined it actually a little bit. So I, I I had that same feeling with with this. Not that it wasn't well done. It's just that I liked the original. What did you like about the original? Everything. The, everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like. I like the acting was pretty realistic for being in the silent era. There was a bit of that over dramatic facial and body movement that was common for that kind of film. But I liked the uh, the setting, the way it looked like kind of an ominous city. These uh, proletarian drones down below working endlessly in jobs that nobody could really figure out. At least I couldn't figure out what they were doing. And I love that scene where they, they kind of explode and that big place where they're working, they end up going off into, the, into their death, to their death, and then it turns into this gaping yaw of a, a yawn or a yaw of a, of a kind of a monster. Remember that scene up the stairs and it's the, the statue and it has sort of a it has sort of a creepy monster look. That might not be in the version I that, watched. That's right. That's not in the one. That I don't you remember watched. that. So now you're really piquing my interest on the, the the better version. Yeah. There's an explosion of some kind. Something doesn't get fixed in time, and it blows up this machine. And it seems like hundreds of people die. And then there's this gaping monster-like mouth that they're going into to die. Oh wow! So I love that. I love all the. Uh, the Art Deco feel of it, although there's a mixture of all kinds of architecture. And I like that they had a different architecture for the upper city and a different architecture for the lower city. Oh, very definitely. And then, yeah. like, an even different architecture for um, Rotwang's house and, like, the dungeon and his laboratory. Yeah, for a small house, that had a lot going on. It did. And then the, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel that Marie is talking about, I love that. And that's actually taken from a painting from 1563. And they patterned that after uh, the, the new Tower of Babel in Frederson's headquarters was, t was uh, patterned after that painting. So there's just a host of things to say nothing of the uh, good versus evil, father-son, worker, uh, overseer, all of that. I'll just talk about a couple of things I really liked. I, I love the transformation scene of Maria into the, the robot. I love the scenes of the robot dancing in the nightclub where she's like 
almost hypnotizing everybody. Oh, there. right. And right. it was so frenetic and just so, like, crazy. And it reminded me of, like, the Roaring Twenties, you know. It's like this uh, Jazz Age sort of feel to it. And I love that. And then the scene where they realize that Maria is actually not Maria. It's, it's the machine man, the robot. And they tie her up and they, they burn her at the stake like she's a witch from the, you know, 1600s or something. And she transforms back into the machine. And I thought that, I love that whole subplot. That whole yeah. sub story was, was just amazing. And then I, I love the, I love the subplot of uh, Maria, Frederer and Frederer's father and how they sort of reconcile at the end. Yes. Yes. And he becomes the mediator between his father and the heart machine operator. There's so much to like about this. I, I, I gave it a 10 out of 10. I I loved everything about it, even though it's a silent film, and I haven't watched a lot of silent films. You really, uh, the music and all was enough. I didn't really need to know everything they were saying. And they and they did a good job with the title cards. You know, I thought that there was just enough of them to kind of yes. keep you in the loop of what they were saying, but there weren't so many that, you just were reading the whole time. And and I like that about silent films because it really is a visual medium. And since they aren't talking, they have to do it much more with the, just the the visuals. And, and I really like that. So, yeah, I gave it a 10 out of a 10. And I that's based on the Giorgio Moroder version. So now I'm thinking it's probably even higher <laughs> if we had... If we had a 15, for instance, I could go 15. <laughs> we'd use the Snow White scale. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's a wonderful movie. I'm glad we did it. Uh, uh, next next podcast. So why don't we do the Thief of Baghdad next? Okay. And that's on okay. you. It's on YouTube, and I'll put a link into the show notes for the episode, and uh, then we can watch that. And also, I think City Lights is on. Uh, YouTube as well, and that'll be the yeah. the one after Thief of Baghdad. City Lights is Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, yeah. And 1931, wow, they were that was a silent film in, in the era of talkies when they first started having talkies. It was right around that transition, yeah. Yeah, maybe the last silent film ever made. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. So, yeah, next week, Thief of Baghdad, the week after that, uh, City Lights, and then we'll finish off the month with Nosferatu as we head oh. into October for our horror month. Our horror month. I love, I love that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing you all great movie watching.
Yeah, this is funny because I was looking at the metropolis1927.com website and they list the kind of history of the film. And the version that we watched was released in 1984 and it's the little sentence here says, Giorgio Moroder releases a colorized version of the film featuring a new soundtrack that includes Bonnie Tyler, Pat Benatar, Freddie Mercury, Adam Adam Ant, etc., <laughs> Seen as sacrilegious by many, and a camp cult reworking by others. <laughs> well, we'll have a good discussion, because I watched both. 